0: Today's show is brought to you by our new sponsor, Cog Network. Cog Network, geared for gain. Cog Network is hedge fund investing evolved. By owning Cog Network tokens, you get exposure to the hedge fund's gains. The hedge fund is comprised of algorithmically traded commodity futures and investment in hard assets related to energy. The first hard asset is partial ownership of a multi-million dollar solar farm that has a crypto mining operation attached. I mean, this is really something that both traditional and crypto investors can come together and participate in. So for traditional investors, they can get exposure to cutting-edge blockchain technology in a framework that they're familiar with. A hedge fund, right? And crypto investors can get exposure to an actual security that bears dividends and includes non-crypto assets. So that's super cool. And just for full disclosure, Cog Network is a fully registered and regulated entity qualified by the SEC as a Reg D as well as a Reg S and has a 506C exemption. They've been working with lawmakers since 2017 to get this idea built out in a fully compliant way. Crip Nation, if you guys are interested in learning more about a tokenized hedge fund, go visit www.cog.network. All right, all you good citizens of Crip Nation, it is your host, uh, Bryce Paul, and today I am not joined uh, by the notorious uh, co-host of mine, the young pizza mind. He is out of the office today, a uh, little quarantined, just making sure that he is uh, he's staying locked down. Uh, so I'm here joined with a good uh, fellow podcast host of the Moving Up podcast, Alex Grodnick. Uh, And we're going to talk about investment banking. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, his path uh, on Wall Street um, and all sorts of different stuff. Really focused on, you know, finding the authentic self um, and and why he, uh, you know, why he really does what he does. And it's going to be really interesting. I've spoken with Alex at length before. Fascinating guy. So I think you guys are all going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, Alex, welcome to Crypto 101 Podcast, man. Thanks for joining
1: yeah. Thanks, Bryce. Hope I can live up to that lofty intro.
0: <laughs> I know you can. Tell us about your story, man. You got one of the most interesting stories and I'm really excited to, to dive into it.
1: Yeah. So uh, I grew up as like the most entrepreneurial kid ever, right? I mean, like I was like that kid in the town having lemonade stands every single yeah. week, but you know, car washes and selling stuff door to door. I mean, whatever it was, like that was me. And it all came really easily and naturally. And I was like, just making money was super simple. And, uh, and then I went to college. I went to a small school out on the East Coast, Lehigh in, in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, I didn't really know quite what I wanted, but I went there and I kind of caught up in, you know, society's way of thinking of, you know, chasing these very prestigious, sought after jobs. And I'm like, oh, you know, investment banking seems super cool. It's Demanding and rigorous and pays you lots of money and prestigious. I'm like, oh, let's go, let's go do that. And like, you know, little did I know that that would be like the exact opposite fit of like what I was put on earth to be doing. But <laughs> you know, I'm 18 years old. Like, you don't you don't know these things. And so um, I just took that entrepreneurial mindset of putting your head down and just not taking no for an answer, which was what I was born to do, uh, and applied it to going to get an investment making job and you know, all sorts of bumps and twists and turns in the road. I graduated in 2009, right in the middle of the crisis. I and mean, our career fair at school was the day after Bear Stearns collapsed. So not really the best time to be getting a job on, on Wall Street. But like I said, I didn't let any of that stuff deter me. And so I still was able to uh, get in a job. I got a job at J.P. Morgan and, uh, you know, I had to work at some funky locations. It was originally supposed to be in New York. And then I moved to Detroit for a little bit and then out to Los Angeles Um, but I got the job and, you know, much better than working at Starbucks, like what I thought I was probably gonna be doing, uh, in the crisis. Um, so did that job for a few years, the analyst program, and then got another job at a different investment bank out here in Los Angeles where where I'm at at now, um, at Hoolihan Loki. And that was in their financial restructuring group. So a group that's going to be doing like exceedingly well, uh, in this economy when there's distress and bankruptcy on the horizon and people unable to pay back their, uh, their bonds and, and debt payments. Mm. And uh, you know, so I did invested making for like five years. And it's interesting because I don't think I was ever that great at it and nor did I really ever like like it that much. But there are pieces of it that I did like, right? Like I did like making, you know, six figures my first year out of college. I like that society, you know, really valued what I was doing and the way that I thought that they valued it is because I was getting paid a lot of money. And so, you know, but beyond getting paid a lot of money and, you know, now I look back on it, I did learn a tremendous amount. So you get paid and you learn and, you know, everyone in society says like you're doing right, but it's difficult to reflect when you're, you know, working till 4am every single night of, wait, I don't, I don't know that I like this. Like, I don't know that this was what I should be doing or should not be doing just because there's so many signals in the world saying like, no, this is, this is good. Like you're, you're making money. You're doing good. Like keep it up. But, for me, after doing it for five years and, you know, kind of like, I don't know, not really seeing a huge future in this, because like I said, I I didn't know why it wasn't for me, but I just kind of knew, but I didn't know what it was. So it's like, all right, I'm just going to stop doing this. So I stopped doing it. I quit. Uh, I engaged my now wife like a day after I did that and, you know, kind of like made up some time of some personal social things that like you don't really get time to do after doing invested banking for five years. Um, I mean, My bank account was, was sitting in a nice spot, but I wanted to do some other things. And so I didn't, but I had really no clue, right? So then I kind of still unsure of what I wanted to do. Like basically went and got an internal invested banking job where you like you're, I was buying and selling companies, just put at a company, not on the advisor perspective at a, at a bank. And, you know, maybe a little bit closer to what I was wanted should be doing. Cause it was a bit more entrepreneurial, but, but still something was missing. And I'm like, ah, I don't know what the hell I got to do. So that's when I went to business school. Uh, Took a couple of, you know, real business school is a pretty selfish time. You can like look in and do exactly what you want and travel and make no money. And um, it was in business school that uh, that I really just had the light bulb type moment where uh, I was in a class. It was like a leadership type course. And the professor had us write down times when we felt like we're being our most authentic self and he defined that as you know feeling like you're using all of your brain and coming from core values motivated confident whatever so i'm writing down all these times and every single one of them was when i was you know doing one of those side hustles entrepreneurial businesses starting something growing up none of them were when i was you know chasing prestigious jobs or making lots of money or going to work with people that would go to harvard like that didn't factor into it and i was like wow it's pretty clear this is what i got to be doing but shit i'm like an investment banker now how do i start something that like that my core beliefs of like, just like, you know, doing were kind of taken out of me. It, take, it takes some practice to get that, that muscle going again. It's time for that. I started the podcast, which is, you know, how we connected. I started a fintech business. I built this platform that allows you to create shared bank accounts. And we've got tens of thousands of users on that. So um, I'm really in a better spot now. Am I making the investment making money? Not yet. But I'm way, way, way more fulfilled, and you know that money certainly, I believe, uh, will come.
0: That's awesome. That's a really, really awesome rundown. Um, you know, before we kind of get into you know your your uh, actual mindset here, um, and I know something you're big on. Uh, I've listened to some podcasts about rejection therapy um, and, and kind of what that is. I want to dive into investment banking. Uh, it's not often that we get you know former investment bankers. Uh, on the show here at Crypto One Hundred and One, so can you give us kind of like a high level of what is investment banking? Uh, what kind of is like the goal of of what you're supposed to be doing as an investment banker, and how do those guys view cryptocurrency?
1: Yeah, so you know, there's investment banks, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, you know, big banks like that, and then even you know, smaller, more boutique ones. They've got several lines of, of business, but the core investment banking functionality of um, helping companies buy and sell one another mergers and acquisitions, and then helping companies finance themselves, raising debt. um, Those are the two functions that investment banks do. And what they do is it's called financial advisory. It's very similar to like a lawyer where you're getting legal advisory. Uh, They don't raise money for you. They don't, but they help. So it's similar to a broker for a house, like you need to sell your house, you hire a broker, you need to sell your business, you hire an investment banker, and they have relationships and contacts with all sorts of different buyers, be that, you know, um, private equity type buyers, hedge fund buyers, uh, or strategic buyers. So you want to sell your whatever business that you can hire them, and they'll come up with what the value of it should be. And they'll run a process uh, for engaging buyers and And that's uh, that's mergers uh, and acquisitions. And then on the capital raising side, you know, companies are financed. You see the their equity finance piece. You know, stocks trading. You don't usually see the the debt piece, but that's uh, magnitudes bigger than the than the equity side. I mean, Apple. You know, I don't. They have they sell stocks, but they also sell lots and lots of bonds and debt. Um, And that's something that you're going to start to see come up. in the economy right now because you know as these companies raise lots of debt just like you would raise a mortgage for a house things start to get a little shaky and all of a sudden like oh maybe i can't pay that mortgage or maybe that mortgage is coming due in a couple years that debt's coming due and i'm not i need to refinance it to be able to pay back a billion dollar debt offering and so whatever investment banks um advise on how much debt and equity you should have. And then the same thing, they go say, okay, you should have a billion dollars of debt and $3 billion of equity. We'll go find buyers for all of that. Um, And so the job that I had out of college is called an analyst. um, And that goes up to associate and vice president and main director, but really the job of an analyst and associate, uh, you're part of a deal team. And so you'll be working to put together financial models, presentations um, and pitching investors, pitching boards of directors and companies management on, uh, on you know, because you're the expert on what you view as what they should be doing.
0: Etoro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform every year. And they're some of our good friends and they're a great sponsor. US customers can trade the most popular crypto assets and your fees are extremely transparent. So if you're not ready to trade yet, Uh, You could also practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. They give you $100,000 of virtual money and you could start playing around with it and not have to risk any of your real money before you get comfortable with the markets. And best of all, you can connect with 12 million other eToro traders around the world, kind of like a social network for trading, to discuss charts and all things crypto. So go ahead, create an account today at etoro.com slash crypto 101. That helps us, that helps you, that helps them and makes everything possible here if you guys use that link. So guys, start building your portfolio the smart way. Etoro is crypto trading made easy. All right, back to the show. You know, I'm kind of going back to this thought of these corporate bonds that you're talking about in light of this whole situation unfolding right we're in a pretty big liquidity crisis right now. a lot of companies are having a hard time you know raising money in this kind of environment because there's you know taxes that people need to pay with their dollars and, and debts they need to service and so the last thing you're thinking about really is like oh well how do we reinvest this this capital but you know what what is the incentive right now or is there incentive uh, to buy corporate debt?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it like everything else, it determine, it's determined by the price. So, um, you know, debt, just like stocks trades, it's not on a liquid, on a market that, that, you know, it's an it's an institutional market because it trades in, you know, million, $10 million, $100 million chunks. And, you know, that's not something that uh, consumer investors get access to, but that is something that hedge funds and private equity funds and, and things like that um, get access to. And, you know, debt is of the capital structure of how I, a business is right and it's a more senior piece. It's back to the to the house analogy. If you buy a house for a million dollars and you get a seven...
2: Hey guys, Tivo here to tell you about the Ufi video lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera and a doorbell all in one. Recordings. they're always recorded locally and you will always have access customer support for the eufy video lock is 24 7 so you don't have to worry about any issues you have and it comes with an 18 month warranty what I love about this product is, it is it's truly all-in-one with the three-in-one you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts it's all in this package with the eufy video lock so if you're interested in learning more go on Amazon and search eufy video lock that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door.
1: $100,000 mortgage on that house, then you have $700,000 of debt and $300,000 of equity to make the, the million-dollar purchase price. But what happens if home prices decrease by 10%? All right, now your home is worth $900,000, um, but you still have that $700,000 of debt, and now only $200,000 of equity. Right. And what happens if they decrease by another 10%? Another 10%. All of a sudden, like that equity cushion starts to erode, but the debt, you know, because it's senior to that, and there can be different tranches within a debt uh, structure um, it's viewed as less risky than equity. So there's, you don't have to worry on, uh, you know, until the value runs out through the equity of like, if someone's going to be able to pay this back or not. The issue with, with debt is, is that, uh, they have maturities, you know, two, five, 10 year maturity on debt. And so maybe the company is able to continue to service the debt. That's like making the mortgage payment every month, making the coupon payment, but come Right now, maybe they have a bond maturing for one hundred million dollars, and like oh shit, they don't have a hundred million dollars to repay that bond, and up uh, the market like isn't too receptive to this type of issuer issuing a new one hundred million dollar bond right now, so that's when things can get scary and like there can be problems, and that's when there needs to be restructurings and workouts of of uh, of identifying what's going to happen, but you can you know look up the price i mean if you, not readily available, but if you had like a Bloomberg terminal or something, you could look up the price of these bonds to your question of like, is it interesting to buy them? And you can see, well, so and so's bond is you know just like equity. It's like this it seems like a little over adjustment to what the what the value of this company is and what their future cash flow projections look like. But if you look at just like a general high yield bond index, you know that's that's like what these kind type of you know companies issue bonds at and they buy all these buy all these companies debts. Those indexes are trading like way, 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 way down because people are scared that you know those companies may not be able to repay Mm. or refinance. And if you look at what happened in two thousand eight, those companies' uh, bonds traded way, 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 way down. But you know most of them were able to refinance, repay, restructure, whatever, figure it out. And um, so yeah, there's interesting opportunities here. But yeah, I don't know. I'm not not an expert on on high yield debt at the moment.
0: (laughs) No, it's 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 really fascinating. I really appreciate that insight. Um, And kind of before we move on you know, when do you think that this whole economy is really going to turn around? Uh, What's your view? Oh, uh and and, and how do you, and and maybe not that, but like, you know, the VIX is trading at almost an all time high and it's staying there. Um, Does that just mean that people don't know how to quantify like forward risk? Uh, That means that, you know, people are paying a higher premium on insurance for for their options. Like, you know, what's really going on and, and when is this all going to calm down, do you think?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's uncertainty in the markets and the market, if there's one thing that, you know, it does not like uncertainty. Um, There's certainly going to be opportunity. I mean, that's, this is how my brain is working all day long. I'm trying to think about structurally, structurally in our economy, like what is changing? Like coming out of this, yeah, sure. You can, you know, companies are, you know, 20, 30% on sale and that's interesting, but Like the big, big plays are like, well, what, how are humans' behavior changing coming out of this? And is it, you know, this work from home thing is interesting and uh, uh, video communication is interesting. I mean, those things are already being capitalized on, but like, what else? There's going to be other opportunities. And, you know, as Warren Buffett says, you need to be uh, fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And right now everyone's, everyone's fearful. So certainly there's opportunities just in the broader stock market. If you can have, you know, you have cash and you have confidence. Uh, the markets on sale. More uh, big picture thinking. Like I like to think about how the what the are the big big changes that are going to happen here. And so I've been trying to come up with those. You know, and my buddies at night we jump on Zoom and debate um, where big opportunities are. And you know, now as a startup guy, uh, you know, raising money from venture capitalists and you know, swinging for the fences. Uh, that's really what I like to think about.
0: So besides the work from home stuff, um, I mean, what, what what's like maybe just one trend that you see um, having, you know, accelerated right now in light of all the new regulations that are coming or in light of, uh, you know, the current situation?
1: Yeah. So um, kind of plays into the, the FinTech app that I've built, but I've got this view that, what the bank of the future looks like. I'm not talking about an investment bank. I'm just talking about like a, you know, General Chase, Wells Fargo, like where people hold their money. Um, what does it look like in the future? And I think it, there's probably a pretty good chance that it doesn't look or feel anything like a traditional bank today because a traditional bank today is, you know, it's 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 like, uh, essentially like, you know, cable television. It's like a dumb cord. It just like, you know, serves a, a broad set of problems for a broad set of users, but it doesn't really solve anything that great for, for that many people. And I think the bank of the future, like I said, doesn't look or feel like a bank, but it's built around solving a problem for a set of customers. And so I, t- I think one of the cool examples of this is Uber money. So Uber now for their drivers gives pays a driver instantly after every single ride. And so the money goes right into your, in your Uber wallet and they give you a, a debit card To spend that money, and the debit card is cool. It's got some you know great rewards four percent cash back at gas stations and something at restaurants and and that sort of thing. So now you're thinking, oh hey, I want to go go out tonight. You know, not tonight, but hopefully in the near future we're able to go out again. I want to go out on a date. I want to go. You know, I need sixty bucks. I'm gonna go drive Uber for for a few hours. Now I've got sixty dollars in my Uber account and a debit card to spend it. Am I thinking wait wait? I need to transfer this money to my chase account before I can go spend it. No, like you're going to spend it right from your Uber account. And over time, Uber is going to give you more and more banking type services. So, Hey, by solving that problem of giving you instant access to your money, what did Uber just do? They became your bank. Although it never, ever feels like that. Right. Same thing is true with the platform that I'm building. We solve the pain points and problems around collecting and managing money with a group. You could think, you know, four roommates out of four roommates manage money today. One roommate, pays the Netflix bill, the utility bill, the uh, uh, landlord, and you know they've devised some type of behind-the-scenes system of like, you pay me back, IOU tracking, split-wise, Excel sheets, Apple notes, keeping track in your head, whatever it is. Why is that? Like, Why can't I create a Dropbox-style bank account with my friends or my wife or husband or boyfriend, girlfriend, or whatever it is, um, and then be able to spend from every single one of these Organized budget account, so I have my roommate group and my girlfriend group and my spring break a group, and I can switch in the app all spending on one physical debit card of where I want that to pull from. So that's what that's what what we've built, and so it's a similar proposition of by solving that problem around like, you know, I need to collect money from twenty people right now. How do you do that? Venmo and an Excel sheet that sucks. So our app provides organization, transparency for everybody in the group to collect and manage money, and then an easy, transparent way to spend it. And so by solving that problem around collecting and managing money, now all of a sudden, like I'm holding your money, you're spending the money here, I'm gonna give you more and more banking type features over time. I just became your bank, although it doesn't feel like that.
0: That's amazing. I love that idea. Um, I mean, it's just so practical. I mean, I, I know just for you know roommates in the past and stuff, it was always you know, hassle to you know go around and collect all the all the different debts and you know all that kind of stuff. And then you know, getting a shared bank account with a girlfriend or um, all that's really really cool. So you know, where can we find out more about uh, about that company?
1: Yeah, so that company is called Switch, and you can uh, check that out. We're in that we're in the App Store. Um, oh, awesome! Yeah, yeah, it's
0: that's, already it's already live.
1: Yeah, that one's live and going. We've got tens of thousands of users using it, and uh, it's all it's pretty
0: cool. Cool. Um, so before I let you go, I, I want to know a little bit about, um, about your work with, with rejection therapy and, and, you know, kind of how I see it. I and mean, I've heard about this stuff before about just not taking no for an answer and trying to get creative um, when faced with obstacles. Um, but I'd love for you to riff on that for, for a few minutes.
1: Totally. So I, met, I mentioned, uh, I was like the entrepreneurial, kid growing up and like what it's like the essential tenant of an entrepreneur i think it's just someone that just doesn't take no for an answer maybe you take no but like you just you find a creative solution to uh to not accepting that like someone says you can't do something and you're like okay well i'm gonna like figure out i'm like gonna look at uber like all the government said like don't do this and like well we're obviously not going to stop doing this we're just going to figure out a way to to go around that so the central idea here is you can't be afraid of no you know like we're humans are conditioned not to want to hear no, you know, like thousands of years ago, like you heard, no, that meant that meant you like, you know, starved to death or got eaten by a lion or or something. So really what we're, our brains are wired to do is to like not go out there into the world and apply ourselves because no one wants to get rejected. Like that's hard. Like the only reason you don't go up, you know, to all the hot girls at the bar is because like, (laughs) you don't want to get told no, but really once you start to like, define a process around that and desensitize yourself to the fear of rejection, all of a sudden it doesn't become difficult to go out into the world and start businesses and ask hot girls or whatever to go on dates with you because you desensitize yourself to the fear of rejection. Same is true if you're afraid of germs, right? Like you're a germaphobe. I'm telling you, uh, Bryce, that by like, you know, touching some dirty door handle or something, maybe not today in our in our environment, don't, don't go touch any germy thing, but um, usually over time, if you touch you know, something that has a lot of germs on it, over time, you're not sick. You didn't die. You're like, oh, you know, it's not so bad. Um, I had a friend that was really afraid of spiders, and then he went and lived in South America for a year. And he came back and he's like, dude, I've seen spiders now that are like bigger than my head. I'm obviously not afraid of a little house spider anymore. So yeah. that desensitization process, it's the same uh, Is true of rejection. So the way that you have to do it uh, is you have to become not afraid. And how do you become not afraid? It's like there's – hack. There's like a little hack to the system of, you know, by I'm talking about difficult things to ask for promotions at work or starting businesses or, you know, girls to go out with you at at bars. Um, But if you start off asking for very, very small, insignificant things, your brain treats it the same way. So you ask someone for a stick of gum or a high five or to take a selfie with you or for a dollar or, you know, for a discount at a restaurant or something. And, you know. Oftentimes throughout this, like you'll get what you're asking for, like a restaurant all the time, where we'll give you 10% off or you'll get to go do something cool. And so that's an unexpected side benefit of it. But what you're looking for is to be rejected, to be told no. So when you get told no, it's like, okay, that's cool. That's what I'm getting. And I'm telling you over time and not even a long time, like days or a week, if you put yourself out there every single day and you know get one or two rejections, that over a week period all of a sudden asking for like much larger more important things in your life doesn't seem difficult anymore so you just have to reframe your mindset to not be afraid of that rejection by doing these simple little uh, tricks and then you'll be able to go out and you know do basically anything and you know, it's just like anything else it's like the entrepreneurship muscle requires you know constant work your mu- body muscles require you know pumping up your biceps like if you stop doing it your muscles are going to decrease like you're going to be afraid of rejection again, but. Again, you can go work that muscle if you developed a, a process of, of how to do it. And you can go get that, that desensitization of the fear and then you can go, you know, accomplish anything you want.
0: I love it. I mean, it's all about, you know, changing your mindset and uh, leveling up from where you are now, uh, kind of recognizing uh, weaknesses and saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on this. I'm going to work on this. I'm going to make myself a better person. And you know, that's really, you know, a lot of the things that we talk about here at Crypto 101, uh, really revolve around that too, about taking back, um, taking back your freedom and taking back your rights, um, and taking back just um, you know disrupting the status quo. And so I, I love, I mean, man, I really love all the all the work that you're doing, especially with Switch. I mean, I think that's an amazing concept. Um, and I know I, I'm about to go download it and see if I could get it set up with, uh, with my roommate and with my girlfriend and stuff like that. So uh, stay tuned on some feedback from me. <laughs>
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Bryce. This was fun fun speaking with you.
0: Absolutely. I'll talk to you soon, Alex. Take it easy. Stay safe out there.